Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Dr. Nicole Avina, neuroscientist and author of the new book, Sugarless, a seven-step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings, and conquer your addiction. She's an associate professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. She's a research neuroscientist and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy and women's health. In this episode, we talk about Dr. Avina's new book, Sugarless, and her journey into the field of nutrition and food addiction. As evidenced by her research, she shares how sugar is as addictive as cocaine, releasing dopamine in the brain. And it's hard to get away from sugar. It's hidden in everything. Americans consume on average 22 teaspoons of added sugar daily, far exceeding the recommended intake of six to eight teaspoons. We discuss the effects of sugar on physical and mental health, including brain fog and depression. She offers advice on how to reduce sugar, not completely eliminate it, tips and strategies for working through sugar cravings and social situations, and how to help your kids kick the sugar roller coaster. This was such a great episode. Keep listening to learn more. I have some super exciting news, Purely fans. I am so thrilled to announce that our newest product line of cookie granola is finally here. We've created a one-of-a-kind recipe where a delicious cookie meets our wholesome granola. It's made with organic gluten-free oats and coconut flour, 100% whole grains, baked with coconut oil and almond butter, and only 6 grams of sugar. These snackable granola clusters have all of the flavor and crispness of your favorite cookie recipe, but in an indulgence you can feel good about. It comes in three flavors to obsess over, chocolate chip, double chocolate, and my personal favorite, oatmeal raisin. Find our cookie granolas at Walmart, Whole Foods, Publix, and on our website at purelyelizabeth.com. To find a store near you, use the link below in the show notes. I hope you're as obsessed with this new product as I am. Enjoy. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on today, and I'm so excited to talk all about your new book, Sugarless. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. So let's start with your journey. And first, what inspired you to explore getting into the area of nutrition and food addiction? Well, you know, it's actually kind of interesting. I sort of fell into this a bit, if you can believe it or not. <laughs> I just started graduate school at Princeton. And one of the things that I was talking about with my advisor, I was doing a PhD in neuroscience. And we were talking about what I might work on for my dissertation, which is this like big, long project that's taking five years. It's this like massive endeavor. And I, at the time, was beginning to get interested in the obesity epidemic because this is going back quite a few years, but it was back in 2000 and 2001. And what we were seeing was that, you know, people were talking about obesity as still being more of a problem there where the person doesn't have willpower or they just, you know, can't control themselves. And so we started to talk and think, well, 
you know, our food environment's changing. Maybe some people are becoming addicted to food, just like people can become addicted to drugs or alcohol. And so we set down this path of doing a bunch of experiments to test whether or not food could be addictive. Highly processed foods could be addictive. And basically that kind of flash forward led us to where we are now. I mean, we've published like over a hundred papers on this topic. Lots of other labs have become interested in it. And now I think that we're really starting to turn a corner and, you know, that really prompted me to want to write the book to really help people understand the research around food and addiction and sugar in particular and how that plays a role and, you know, how it affects our brain, how it affects our health. And more importantly, what can we do to minimize it and reduce it in our diet so that we can make some steps to improve our health as well? So when you were first doing the research, were you surprised to find this or you knew that this is probably the likely scenario? You know, we were a bit surprised. I think that anytime, you know, you do a scientific experiment, you kind of go in with a little bit of cautious optimism, right? You design the study and you hope that it's going to work, but nine times out of 10, they actually don't work. That's why science is a process and it takes so long for us to get results. So, you know, we were not really confident that this was going to be the case, but when we started to do more and more studies and get the same results and we were starting to see for me, the light bulb moment was when we were doing our studies and initially we did these studies in our little lab rats. And what we found was that the rats were releasing a neurochemical in the brain called dopamine in response to overeating sugar. And typically you don't see that with food. Typically, you know, when you eat food, it doesn't necessarily release dopamine. Drugs of abuse and alcohol, though, do release dopamine. That's part of the hallmark of them and why, you know, they're so addictive. And so when we were able to see that sugar was acting like a drug in the brain in terms of releasing neurochemicals, to me, that was sort of like, wow, this is yeah. really something. So that was really the kind of moment where we were like, okay, I think we're onto something here. Wow. Okay. So what are some of the most surprising or alarming facts that people should know about sugar? Because there's a lot of them, whether it's the consumption, the effects, let's hear it. Yeah, so I think that it's really the fact is that most of us are consuming way too much of it. And we don't even realize it because it's hidden in a lot of different foods that are out there. And so obviously there's places like you expect to see sugar. We expect it in our cereal. We expect it, you know, obviously in ice cream and things like that. But I don't expect it in bacon. <laughs> I don't know about yeah. you. <laughs> and I don't expect it in English muffins. You know, I don't necessarily expected in salad dressing, you know, pasta sauce. Exactly. Exactly. And I even actually, I just went grocery shopping and I was trying to buy mustard and I had to go through like four different mustards. Cause wow. they had, I don't know why that has to have sugar. <laughs> so again, it's hidden in so many things and that's really contributing to people over consuming it and not even realizing it. So the latest data suggests that on average, Americans consume 22 teaspoons of added sugar each day, but it's recommended that we only consume between six to eight teaspoons a day. Wow. So it's really a lot. And one of the things that I think, you know, I really try to focus in on the book about is the fact that, you know, this isn't all about obesity and being overweight. Yeah, that's how I got interested in it. But we've learned so much more about how sugar affects our physical health and our mental health since then. 
And so, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting about sugar, when people start to reduce it and find that, you know, they're able to bring it down to a more appropriate level of intake, they really feel better. And it's not just physical, but it's also emotional and mental too. People talk about how they don't have that brain fog, how their mood is improved. And so there's a whole host of benefits that really could come along with reducing it and working toward getting it low in your diet. Okay. So let's dive into that because as you said, it's not just about obesity and gaining weight, but let's get into how does sugar really affect our brain and body? And really like it's this silent killer that's behind so many of the problems that we're facing today from a health and mental health perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So basically when you eat something that has sugar in it, and you know, we have to be careful because lots of things have sugar in it that don't necessarily do this. So if you bite into an apple, you know, you're going to have a very different response than if you bite into a candy bar, right? Because, you know, that apple might have naturally occurring sugars in it, but it's also packed with fiber and a whole bunch of other micronutrients that are going to be beneficial to your body and brain, and they're going to mitigate the effects that the sugar is having. But if you bite into something like a candy bar that maybe doesn't have all those benefits, but has a lot more added sugar, then what you typically see is that there is a release of not only sugar in our blood, so you know sugar is going to be released into our blood that then needs to be absorbed or utilized. And unless we're running a marathon often, <laughs> probably not going to utilize all that sugar all the time. And so what ends up happening is it gets stored in our body as fat. And so for some people, that means they store fat like on their body where they look like they have extra body fat, but other people store fat on their organs, which is actually more dangerous because you can work to reduce the body fat accrual that you have on your body, but getting rid of organ fat is a lot more difficult. So that's why a lot of times people have been talking lately about how excess sugar intake is linked to fatty liver disease. And so too much sugar could actually cause your liver to have fat cells in it, which is not a good thing. So that's what happens in our body, but in our brain, we have the release of these neurochemicals that are associated with pleasure and reward. And normally that would be just fine. I mean, yeah, let's do something that's enjoyable and it'll you know release these neurochemicals. But the problem is that our brain becomes adapted to it and it expects to always be getting this stimulation from sugar. So that's why we feel like we need to have more and more and more. And, you know, one little cookie maybe isn't going to satisfy us. We need to have a couple. And that's why, you know, we'll start to feel a little lethargic if we go too long without having sugar, because our brain is craving it almost like it craves a drug. And so that's because of these changes in the neurochemicals that are happening when we repeatedly eat foods that have lots of added sugar. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is the effects of sugar on children's health. And certainly, you know, it's bad for all of us, but let's kind of talk more specifically about children because certainly they're eating so much more than they were ever. And, you know, again, it's everywhere, but particularly drinks that, you know, they're getting fed an apple juice and a who knows what other snacks. So it's just throughout their diet. And so can you share a little insight and recommendations for parents on how they can deal with kids' sugar consumption? 
Yes. And I'm glad you brought this up because it is so important because the habits that our kids develop early on are the ones that they're going to carry with them as they get older. And as we know, you know, it's hard to break bad habits sometimes, especially if you've been, you know, following those habits for many, many years. So I can speak to this as a parent too, because I have little kids and, you know, it's a real challenge because a lot of times our culture is pushing sugar on our kids. Even if at home, you know, we're saying, you know, you have to reduce your sugar or let's not have too much, you know, and try to teach our kids restriction or limitation. You know, what happens when they go to school or to grandma's is a whole other story. And so one of the things that I really recommend that people try to do is not be too all or nothing about it. You know, I think some people sort of default to the fact that maybe we should just say you can't have any sugar and really restrict it a lot. I don't think that's a good idea because then that's sending the message to kids that, you know, it's a black or white situation when it's not. I think it's more important to teach them about having, you know, appropriate limits. So if they go to school and it's Susie's birthday and Susie's mom sent in cupcakes, yeah, have a cupcake if you want one. But know that when you get home, don't ask for some ice cream for dessert because you already had your dessert, you know, with Susie at school. So I think it's really about, you know, showing kids like you can still have things and enjoy them and celebrate or, you know, in enjoy these things in, as part of what you want to eat, but you have to be mindful of the portion sizes. You have to be mindful of how often you're having them and you have to really just work toward balancing the diet. And so I think that, you know, for most people, that sounds like a ridiculous request because like, who, you know, what five-year-old is going to say, oh, y'all only have one. But over <laughs> time, when you have these conversations with the kids, it does sink in. And I think that that's really the important thing is to, you know, keep the discussion going um, I also don't think it's a good idea to have some certain things in the house. Like I don't, we don't keep soda in our house. We don't keep juice in our house, but if the kids go out to a pizza party and you know, there's juice available. Okay. Yeah. They can have a juice box. So again, I think it's really about, you know, minimizing the exposure to these things and not making many of these different sugar rich substances, a regular part of your routine, because if you keep it in your house, you're kind of conveying to the kids like, oh, yeah, this is normal and safe and we should be consuming this stuff a lot. But if you just have it once in a while for a special occasion when you're out and about, then that's telling the kids just that, that it's a once in a while kind of thing. OK, so you talk about that currently we're consuming about 22 teaspoons a day, mm. which is well beyond what we should be consuming. In your recommendation, what is an okay amount? And I think it's also hard to think about like what is a teaspoon amount. Yeah. So if you can give us some uh, examples of what that really looks like too. Yeah, it is hard to visualize. And I think that's part of the challenge that we face because you hear these statistics and the recommendations are, you know, six to eight teaspoons a day. And most people are like, Okay. I don't even know how much that is. Right. Like, like, I, I have ready. 20 grams. There's 20 grams of sugar in this soda. Like, what is that? Right. So basically what I recommend is that I'm not a big advocate for like counting stuff that makes it like cumbersome and it makes people really, you know, stressed out. And, you know, when you get to your limit, then it gets like, oh my gosh, it's only breakfast. And I already had all the sugar for the day. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend is people just try to, you know, select products and select items that are really low in sugar or zero added sugar if you can. And so I think that for most people like yogurt, let's stick with that. That's a good example. 
you know, certain brands of yogurts have so much added sugar in them. And, you know, you want to try to find the ones for me that either have no added sugar and then you can add your own. Like you want to squirt a little bit of honey so you can control how much sugar is being put in there or chop up some fruit and like blend it in so that you can, you know, sweeten it naturally that way. To me, that's a better option. I think that, you know, looking for products that, again, are on that added sugar label on the nutrition facts panel, really just as low as we can go is really the best way to do it. So it's one thing to say, okay, let's go for less sugar. Let's try to get less sugar in our diet, but it's really hard. And it's hard because A, it's addictive. And let's start with that. So you started off telling about that you found out of the dopamine and this is addictive, but if you can explain a little bit more about why sugar is addictive and how we can work to combat that addiction. Yeah. So the addiction part's really, I think, interesting because when we took the criteria that are laid out to diagnose people as having addictions to drugs and alcohol, and these are the American medical criteria that are used by American Psychiatric Association and other agencies to diagnose people as having addictions, you can see that there's a variety of different criteria that need to be met. And so there are things that we typically think of like binging, craving, withdrawal, you know, also, you know, spending an excess amount of time thinking about the substance or using the substance or recovering from it. And so all of these different things have been found to be happening when people are over consuming processed foods and sugar in particular. And so this is something that I think really is important because, you know, typically, historically, we only thought about addictions as being associated with drugs and alcohol. But now more recently in the past several years, we're starting to see data and find out that there are other things that can also be addictive, like gambling, for example. Gambling is now recognized as an addictive condition. Um, it wasn't in the past. It's only you know been in the past five or six years that that's happened. How about our phones? Is I was that just going to say, yes. And then the internet and phones. <laughs> Studies are coming out that are showing that, yes, these criteria can be met when we're talking about internet use or social media use. And so food is, again, part of that, too, in the sense that, you know, we're finding that it's other things besides drugs and alcohol that can be addictive. So then the question becomes, okay, you know, with drugs and alcohol, it's always been clear, just don't do them, right? You just don't have any alcohol, don't have any drugs, and then you'll be fine. But we can't really do that with food right? Because we need food to survive. And to be honest, a little bit of cocaine is definitely not good for you, but a little bit of sugar might be fine, right? So why should we have to not have apples and things that naturally have sugar in them? So it becomes a bit different in terms of how we talk about, you know, treating it or getting off of sugar. And so what I talk about in my new book, Sugarless, is really not this whole like cold turkey, you have to quit it. It's, you know, toxic in the sense that you can't ever, ever have it, but it's more about reducing it down to the point where you're in control. And what that, that's referred to in the medical field is a harm reduction approach. So we're bringing the harm down. Like, yes, 22 teaspoons of sugar every day is bad for your health. You're going to reduce that harm by bringing it down. And if you can get it down to, you know, six teaspoons a day, that's amazing. But again, even if you bring it down to 10 or 15, that's still better than 22. And so it's really about 
improving your personal health by reducing the sugar and slowly but surely getting it down so that again you can still live your life and not feel like you're depriving yourself all the time and enjoy the things that you're eating but be able to make those tweaks to them so that they don't have so much added sugar that we know is harmful for our health so it's looking for the better alternatives like our granola for example than mm -hmm. a, a more sugar-laden one yeah but what steps do you recommend for people to take when they've decided, okay, they're going to read your book and say, I'm ready to start reducing my sugar intake. Where, where do you suggest people start on that journey? Yeah. I mean, you definitely need to have a roadmap because it's overwhelming. It's daunting. I mean, I've had so many people tell me over the years, yes, I am so addicted to sugar. I need to do something about it, but I just don't know where to start because again, you know, there's so many layers to it. It's, you know, the whole social piece of it where it's being pushed on us at all times, the advertising where it's being advertised to us at all times, the fact that it's just in so many things. So in my book, I talk about a seven step approach that people can take to systematically combat this issue, because it isn't something that, you know, you could do overnight, you have to really break this down into steps. And so one of the steps that is really important, is to focus on your beverages. Beverages are actually the biggest source of added sugar for most people. And a lot of people come into this situation with either a soda habit where they're drinking lots of soda every day, or they're drinking lots of coffee that has a lot of sweeteners and creamers and you know that kind of thing, or they're drinking juice. And so it's really about starting there because your beverages, if you think about it, if I said to you, Elizabeth, I want you to eat eight apples. I'm going to lay these apples out and you're going to sit there and eat them. Or I said, Elizabeth, I'm going to take eight apples and juice them. And then I want you to drink the juice. Which one do you think you could do quicker? The juice. The juice, right. And you probably wouldn't feel full after having the juice, but you probably would feel full and you'd probably be exhausted after eating. Totally. <laughs> so there's a big difference between eating your fruit and drinking your fruit. And so that's why, you know, I really recommend that people ditch the juice. If you want to have like a liquid version of your fruit, that's great. Make a smoothie, but put the whole piece of fruit in it. Don't, you know, throw away the pulp and all of that because that's what has the fiber and a lot of the nutrients. So it's really about thinking about those beverages at first. That's the first step that I recommend people consider because if you can get those under control, that's a really great jump start to, you know, making sure that you're going in the right direction with reducing your added sugar. What are some of the other steps after that? Yeah, so what I really recommend people do is again break it down into baby steps if you will in the sense that you know focus on your beverages and then we move on in the book to other aspects of the day in terms of how people's diets typically shape up another step that i recommend is that people really think about the cravings now this is the part that i think trips up a lot of people because they may be doing well not giving in to cravings and then they might suddenly find that they have a really bad day at work or they get into an argument with a friend or a spouse and all of a sudden they're just like, oh my gosh, I'm dying for something sweet. And it really is just a very powerful craving. And so I talk about how you need to recognize your triggers. A lot of times if we have an emotional event happen and it sometimes can be a positive thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. If you, you know, did really well on a project at work and your boss commends you, 
a lot of times people want to reward themselves. And so they say, I'm going to go get myself a fancy coffee with 70 grams of sugar in it or something (laughs) like that. And so again, it's about thinking about these emotional things that happen and then how we react. And sometimes that emotion can trigger a craving for sugar. And if we give into it, then that's not a good idea because then we're just basically reinforcing a bad habit of, oh, if I feel a certain way, I I feed my emotion. And we don't want to feed our emotion. We want to just cope with our emotions. And so I spend a lot of time helping people to kind of break down the whole idea of, you know, when you have a craving for something, you have to really think about what is provoking that craving. Is it really hunger? Because these days, you know, people don't typically get cravings for specific foods. Usually people get cravings, you know, because they want the pleasure associated with those foods. That's why you get a craving for a specific food. So if you're hungry, you're probably going to have a craving for more of like a class of foods. Like, for example, let's just say you are a meat eater and you are craving steak all of a sudden. It might be because you're a little bit low in iron and that's your body's way of kind of, you know, dealing with that. But if you happen to walk past, you know, your favorite coffee shop and then all of a sudden, suddenly, you know, you're craving one of these fancy coffees, that's a hedonic craving. That's the craving of the pleasure that you know is linked to that that's going to make you feel good. So recognizing these little nuances around cravings is really important because it can help people to recognize when it happens to them, what's going on so they can, you know, act accordingly. I'm so excited to announce that we have launched two new superfood cereal flavors, chocolate almond and cinnamon raisin almond. Our cereal is intentionally crafted with whole food ingredients you can see and taste like sorghum, oats, chia, and quinoa. Each spoonful of our superfood cereal combines crunchy ancient grain flakes with delicious granola clusters for irresistible taste and texture. Plus, they are an excellent source of vitamin D, a good source of fiber, and have over 30 grams of whole grains per serving. You can find these new flavors along with our existing flavors, honey peanut butter and vanilla blueberry almond at your local Whole Foods and as always on purelyelizabeth.com. Cravings is such a hard one because so much today, especially when we think about reward, I think, as you mentioned, of like you had a great day at work or whatever, it's your birthday, it's Friday, it's it's now it's become like it's anything and and right. you associate that with here's my reward i'm going to have this sweet treat and one of the things i think is really helpful to also think about is like what other reward can you substitute that for so making a list of here's some other great things that make me happy or that i can do as a reward when i'm feeling that because as you said it's really not necessarily the food it could be some other emotional piece to it Absolutely. And I think that's such a great idea is having, you know, that list of things that also make you happy. I think the lure to go toward food is often because it's like a drug in the sense that you're going to get that immediate high, right? If you say, oh, I'm going to, you know, buy myself like a pair of shoes that I had my eye on. Yeah, it's going to feel good when you click on the button and you know that they're coming in a couple of days, but you don't get that, you know, instant gratification as you would when you eat sugar. And so I think that's why so many people are drawn toward that. But I mean, there are other things in life that, you know, can make us feel good. And I think we have to really 
work to, you know, train ourselves to reward ourselves with those things that are going to be healthy for us. And in the long term, they're going to have a positive outcome as opposed to things like sugar, which yeah, in the short term, it's going to make you feel good. But in the long term, it's going to make you feel awful because it's harming your health. And it's also like such a short term. I mean, you're eating it and like it's two seconds later, you're done. So one thing I like to think about that I try to do, because I definitely have a sweet tooth and it's like after dinner, I want to have that sweet thing. And so I've Mm -hmm. been trying to do add in more of a night routine to my evening. And so rather than having that dessert, it's I'm going to go and take a bath or do something to make myself feel good. Yeah, that is so key. And I think the routine part of it is really important because most people find that they have a routine that is supporting them, you know, eating sugar or, you know, eating some of these treats that they're trying to avoid. And so when you change up your routine, it can make a world of difference because you're basically not having those associations. So it's sort of like basic psychology learning, right? We learn things by associating an activity with an outcome. And so, you know, for example, another one would be if maybe you got home from work and the kids are home and everyone's doing homework and asking you a million questions and you're trying to cook dinner and it just gets like chaotic. People might say, I'm really feeling like I need something sweet and, you you know, like trigger a craving. And so if you recognize that that's what's happening, that that's what's triggering your cravings, then, you know, telling the kids to go in their rooms to do their homework or, you know, figuring out a way in which you can kind of break up the chaos that can help to alleviate that trigger, which then will alleviate your craving for a sugar. So it's really about making those changes in the routine and it can have a world of difference and it can make it so much easier when it comes to avoiding those cravings. What about when you're having cravings, opting for something that is just more naturally sweet? So for example, having root vegetables that have a more sweeter profile to them, will that help to satisfy that craving? Absolutely. And in the book, I talk about craving crushing foods and I have a list of different foods that are naturally sweet. And again, I think that these are key because, you know, it's not about, again, reducing all sugar. We want to just focus on the sugars that are healthy for us and that are packaged in a way that are not going to provide us with this exorbitant amount of sugar all at one time. And so root vegetables, like carrots are a great example. Um, When they're roasted, they're nice and sweet, and they can be a great way to help offset a sugar craving or to satisfy your sweet tooth. Also things like grapes, like lots of different fruits have, you know, various degrees of sweetness. And so they can be a great option for if you're having a sugar craving. Um, Also, you know, Another one that I recommend is oatmeal. Oatmeal is great because it has a lot of fiber in it. And so if you do have a craving, if you eat something that's going to satiate you, and the best way to do that is to eat something that has a lot of fiber in it because the fiber is going to expand in our gut. And it's also going to you know trigger these signals in our brain that, okay, we've had a lot of food. We're full now. That's going to help because that's going to make you feel fuller for longer. And so you're not going to have that craving progressing. What are any of your other craving crushing foods? How about protein? How does that play into it? Yeah, protein is so important. And so, you know, really focusing on foods that have protein in them 
and healthy fats too. Those are key because those again are going to help with the satisfaction and help you to feel fuller for longer. See, the thing about carbs and sugars is that they satisfy you. But like you said a few minutes ago, it's like instantaneous. Like you feel great for a few minutes and then it wears off. And, you know, the same thing happens with our satiety. We feel, you know, psychologically satiated when we have, you know, some sugar, but then it wears off and we're actually still hungry. And so focusing on foods that have protein in them, have also healthy fats. So nuts are a good example. Um, tuna is a good example, like a can of tuna. If you're in a rush or a pinch and you're just looking for something that's, you know, high protein, that's a good option. And really just trying to, you know, incorporate those things into your snacks and your meals, it can really make a big difference and, you know, it can help to satisfy you longer. And that's going to be key. So we talked about how sugar is lurking in everything and, you know, talking about cravings, how should we be thinking about something like bread and pasta and you know, they're turning right into sugar, but they might right. not necessarily have added sugar. So how do you classify that? That's such a great question. So I actually have a quiz in the book about this, because I think that people fall into sort of three different categories. There's the people who are like diehard sugar, sweet tooth, like really love the sweets, the cookies, cakes, candies. Then there's the people who are really don't have much of a sweet tooth, but they're like the breads and the pasta and the rice. Like those are the things that they find that it's difficult for them to, you know, put the brakes on when it comes to eating them. And then there's people that are kind of in the middle, right? Who have sort of like a, a cravings for both. And I think that for most of the time when people fall in the middle, which a lot of people do, if you focus on cutting down on the added sugar, you'll find that it can actually help to reduce the cravings for a lot of the things like the breads and the pastas. And again, because when you reduce the added sugar, you know, we're reducing this constant release of dopamine, we're reducing, you know, these effects of our blood sugar going up and then down and, you know, having these like plummets because of, you know, the amount of sugars that we're consuming in a short amount of time. And so I really suggest that you start there. But again, I think it's about, you know, everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to, you know, have their own sort of feelings and, you know, they know themselves best. And so for me, it's about being in control. And that's really what I advocate. So if you find that eating pasta, you can't just have a small portion, you want to eat half a box of pasta, then that means you have to really work toward maybe reducing that or incorporating other types of foods into your diet so that you're minimizing your exposure to things like pastas and breads. It doesn't mean you're never going to have bread again and you're never going to have pasta again. <laughs> but because I think that's what people think. And that's why I'm so against the whole diet culture that we presently yeah. have, where it's very myopic and basically like, you know, it's all or nothing. And that's not really... I think a sustainable way to live. I think if you're struggling with, you know, your bread intake, then, you know, don't keep it in your house. But if you go out to a restaurant and they put it on the table, you know, ask for one piece and then give it back to the server and say, you're finished with the bread now. It's about making these like small changes to your routine so that you can still incorporate these things, but just working toward reducing them and minimizing them. I love that. I'm a big 
believer, the 80-20 rule and being able to enjoy what you can and, and have that balance, especially when you're at home. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's key. We have to live our life, right? And we have to just figure out how to work, you know, our modern food environment into that. Is there any other food or drink that is like a super surprising place where sugar is lurking? I think one area for me that was an interesting learning was that there's a lot of sugar that's actually added to wine that, you know, there's no label, there's no ingredient list, anything else like that, that we should be aware of. Yeah, that's a good question. I have some sections in the book on alcohol and different, you know, types of liquors and, you know, what are the best options if you're trying to reduce your added yeah. sugar? Because you're right. I mean, there is people have this idea that it's just the mixers, right? That have a lot of added sugar, which is very true. If you go and order a margarita at a restaurant, like guarantee there's a ton of sugar in it. <laughs> Um, but you could make some swaps. I mean, again, I, I like drinking margaritas. So when I go to a restaurant, I'll ask for tequila, lime juice, soda water, and a lot of salt on the rim. It's a margarita, right? It just yeah. doesn't have sugar in it. So you just have to be creative. And I have some ideas in the book that really, you know, kind of help you to sort of walk through that. But you're right. Wine is a big one. And again, you know, wine, remember, comes from grapes. And so it's not all that different than grape juice. And like we were just saying, you know, you want to avoid the liquid forms or the juice forms of our fruits, because those are really just sugar. It's just a concentrated form of sugar. And in many cases, you know, depending on the wine, that's what's going to happen. So you do need to be mindful. And that doesn't mean, you know, you can't ever drink wine again. It might mean, okay, if you have your favorite wine and you know, it has sugar in it, Maybe you're going to make wine spritzers now where it's going to be half seltzer, half wine, so that you're automatically, there you go, 50% of the sugar has gone. And so that's one of the things that, um, you know, is a good place to start if you're looking to cut back. Absolutely. There are some great no added wines that I've seen too. So finding those on the market. It's true. And there are quite a few different companies in different regions of the world. I learned a lot about this when I was doing some research for the book that, you know, different parts of the world grow their wine differently and grow their grapes for wine differently. And if you get wines from certain parts of Europe, um, they tend to have, you know, lower, like countries like Austria, for example, the way that they grow the grapes, they tend to have the least amount of sugar in them when they harvest them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's really interesting. If you look at, you know, some of those European countries around Austria, Germany, that part of the world, they just have different practices than we do in the US. And so, you know, you can find some just naturally low sugar wines in those regions. So anything else when you were doing your research that was super surprising or just like an interesting fact that you uh, didn't know you would find going into the research? Well, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting and really tedious in many ways was all the different names for added sugar. And I think that, you know, it used to be the case that when we thought about sugar, we would think, okay, sugar or high fructose corn syrup, those were sort of like the two main players. But now there's like over 250 different ingredients that are actually considered to be added sugars. And so it can be anything from, you know, sugar to, you know, like 
maple syrup to, you know, agave nectar to fruit juice concentrate. I mean, there's just tons and tons of different names of added sugar. And I have a list of them in the back of the book in the appendix. But I think it really boils down to just familiarizing yourself with this idea that it might not say the word sugar on the list of ingredients, right? It could have a bunch of other things listed that if you're not familiar with what they are, they actually might be just code word for sugar. So you do really need to be mindful when you're looking at those labels to make sure that, you know, you're understanding what the ingredients are so that you don't have sugar sneaking in when you're trying to avoid it. How do you feel about all these alternative, like the sugar alcohols, the all of that? Yeah, I think that the sugar alcohols I'm not a huge fan of because they have been linked to a lot of gastrointestinal issues. And so many people are sensitive to them. Um, so you do need to be careful about those. But there's a lot of other sweeteners that are on the market, like monk fruit, stevia. Um, I personally don't care for the taste of stevia. For some reason, I can like, I, I could taste it a mile away. There must I be feel the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't care for it. I, and um, But there's other things like allulose, for example, is another one that's becoming popular. Again, these are sweeteners that can be a crutch, I think, for people who are trying to get off of added sugar. I don't really think that you could simply replace monk fruit with sugar and then live the rest of your life. I think that it's about reducing our reliance on sweeteners in general, added sweeteners in general. But I do say, you know, if you're really struggling with giving up added sugar and reducing your added sugar, if you want to use one of these alternatives, that's great. That's why they're there. But I think at the end of the day, you know, that shouldn't be the end goal. It should really be to try to move toward reducing our reliance on all of these added sweeteners. I think that's a great tip. Have you done any studies with uh, rats as far as their reactions to any of those sugars? Are they just as addictive? Uh, we, yeah. So we have done a, a, lots of studies looking at these different types of sweeteners. And it's interesting. So with rats, some of them are so processed and just like not natural and again you know that and this isn't just those ones that we've been talking about i'm talking about some of the older ones like aspartame for example um and splenda they are so foreign to the rats that the rats don't even taste them or recognize them as having a taste which is really interesting That's so interesting yeah but again a lot of the other ones that we're talking about like monk fruit and and some of the more recent ones that have become popular you know they affect the brain just like sugar does. That's the bottom line. And so if you're trying to reduce your addiction, it's kind of like, I hate to draw the analogy, but I often do. It's sort of like the methadone for heroin, right? You know, it's like <laughs> going to help. It's better than heroin, but you don't want to spend the rest of your life on methadone. Ultimately, you want to get yourself away from all of it. And so, again, I think that it really boils down to, you know, doing what we can to reduce and then, you know, using these as a helper if we need them, but ultimately, you know, trying to phase them out as much as we can too. So what's next in your research? What are you working on? Well, you know, lately it's been focusing on really trying to figure out, you know, how can we better understand the role that sugar plays in our health. So we're interested now in 
trying to figure out, you know, what role does sugar have on mental health? How does reducing sugar impact, you know, many of the mood conditions that people experience like anxiety and depression. And I think that really there's room for us to really explore more of this whole idea of how modifications in our lifestyle can have a significant impact on our mental health. And I don't necessarily think that that's something that people have really focused on in the field of psychology and psychiatry up until recently. I think a lot of it has been, oh, you have a mental health issue, so you need this medication or you need therapy. And yeah, that may be true. But what we're seeing now is that it's becoming more and more recognized that mental health conditions, like examples of anxiety and depression, it's a spectrum. You know, people can be really depressed where they need to be medicated and seeing a doctor, or you could be a little bit depressed where, you know, you're just having a low mood and you need to do something to change that. And that's where I think lifestyle modifications really can play a significant role. And I think it can help a lot of people. So that's something that we've been interested in exploring more and seeing what role does reducing sugar have in promoting health and all these other ways. Well, that's super exciting. I think what's come out so far on that connection is just, it's huge. And to be able to feel like you can be in control of it and not have to rely on some alternatives um, is also really exciting once that research comes out to be able to have those facts. Yeah, I think so. Because I think, you know, people, when they can have the power, right, right in their hand to make the decision right here and now about what they're going to do and know that that's contributing to them moving forward with their health, I think that that's really empowering for people. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to move into some rapid fire Q&A. Okay. Three things that you're currently loving. Oh, gosh, Um, my dog, because I was away for the past week for business trips. And so (laughs) I miss my puppy and I miss my family, of course, but I miss my dog. (laughs) What kind of dog? Oh, he's a PBGB. He's normally here sitting in the chair, but he's outside right now investigating something. Uh, PBGV. He's a petite basic Rafon Vendeen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I'm loving him. I'm loving the gym. I've been going to Orange Theory Fitness for like two years now. And I just, I don't know. I can't get enough of that place. I, I'm like really hooked. I feel so good. I went this morning, so I always feel so good after nice. I... And then I am loving, oh gosh, what's the third thing I'm loving? My, I guess my friends. I feel like so blessed lately. My friends are so supportive. I, I'm really fortunate that I have a lot of friends that are just really good friends. <laughs> and I have just been so lucky lately with my new book coming out and everybody just being so happy for me and supportive. So I'm really just grateful that I have such great friend networks. That's amazing. Love that. Favorite words to live by. Oh, oh, just a little bit. Every little bit counts. You know, making these small changes, even if it's one small thing, it's pushing you toward the right direction. So I'm a big advocate for, you know, taking small steps to get big results. The top three craving crushing foods that are in your grocery cart. Okay. Grapes for sure. Grapes are a big one because they have a high sugar concentration. Oatmeal is another one. And then I would say the third would be avocado because it is so satiating and it's just got lots of healthy fats and also protein. 
a favorite book or podcast for growth? Oh, um, The Mindful Body by Ellen Langer is a book that I highly recommend that I recently finished. It's really about, you know, how your perception and viewpoint of your health actually makes a significant impact on your health, believe it or not. And so that's been a favorite of mine lately. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Oh, I would say my number one non-negotiable is probably my daily walk. I walk, we have a fairly big piece of property. And so I take my dog and we walk no matter what rain, sleet, storms, <laughs> we're out there. And it's just a great way to connect with nature, spend time with the pup, get him exercise, get me exercise. And I don't know, it just to me, it like focuses me. And so I do that in the morning and it's just like a great way to start the day. I love that. You're making me feel bad. I didn't take my dogs out yet today. <laughs> <laughs> in closing, Nicole, where can everybody find you? And what is the one thing you want everybody to leave your book with that one impact? Well, everyone can find me at my website, drnicolavina.com, or you can find me on social at Dr. Nicole Avina. And the book is available wherever books are sold. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find it on Barnes and Nobles. And the one thing that I really hope people walk away with when they look at the book is to just know that you have the power to make the change. And even though, you know, we have all this information and research about the dangers of sugar, how it's addictive, you know, the idea here is knowing that really is a way to stimulate these changes and to make these small changes. And it's really coming down to a fact that it's a matter of life or death. And we really need to think about this in that way, because if we can make these changes and start to reduce our reliance on sugar, it's going to have only positive effects from here on out. Amazing. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.